hello, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. Thank you for tuning in to Soga Talks today. We know you're busy. We know you're busy with work. You know you're busy with vacations. Wherever you're watching us or listening to us, please, please follow Soga Talks, all right? We want your engagement. We want your participation. We want to hear what's happening on your neck of the wood, so to speak, because we're discussing... Uh, tech trends, we're discussing uh, adoption practices, we're discussing everything in between, okay, with fascinating people in tech. So we're asking you to please find us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, YouTube, and major podcasting platform, okay? Wherever you are, whenever you are, find us, you will not regret it. Today, I'm so privileged to host Nick King is here with me. Nick, how are you? Uh, really great to be here, Irene. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Fabulous, fabulous, because we're we... discussing generative AI, all right? Seems like everywhere I go, okay, it pops up in one form or another, all the way from creativity and artistic possibilities, all the way to programming and business analysis and data analysis and you name it, and content creation, of course, right? But we're going to be discussing, you know, how organizations, how leaders can take it seriously as we all try to educate ourselves. Okay, wrap our heads around it. And my previous guest here last week was talking about AI literacy even. Okay, we do need to raise up the level of knowledge first before we do anything and everything with that powerful technology. So let's start somewhere. A generative AI for business outcomes. Okay, one thing for fun and play right we all see it we're all having good time with it but for business outcomes what do you think leaders should be thinking about now yeah i mean i definitely agree with your previous guest which is you know understanding ai literacy or just ai uh concepts in general is a big step forward and i think with generative ai what we really see to start with is leaders they first need to understand how it can influence their business and there's a really big gap between seeing what you see at home and sort of seeing the great innovation we've seen around ChatGPT and kind of saying, okay, how does this apply in an enterprise context or a, or a government context? And how can you apply those things in a predictable way that's safe, uh, that, can, that is revenue positive and can be impactful? And so generally the first step uh, that we go about and we talk to organizations with, and we generally start with the business side and the technology side being slightly separate. And I'll go into why that is. So generally we ask the business, you know, what are you trying to solve and what are your timelines for those? And like, what are those problems worth to you? And we generally try not to talk about tech at all. We're just sort of understanding where those gaps are. And, you know, in the background, what we're kind of thinking about is like, okay, what different techniques do we have? What has worked before? What could we do differently? What is, what is, what's in our hands today that wasn't in our hands two years ago? And that allows us to kind of help the business in some ways prioritize their business outcomes uh, aligned to how generative AI or how, you know, a number of the different types of model techniques could benefit them. And on the technology side, generally we're looking for a couple of things. We're saying, okay, what are the repeatable components of infrastructure that need to be delivered? And then we're also saying like, hey, we know there's a lot of progress in this particular space, like custom large language models is, is a lot of conversations about those at the moment. Generally, we're finding that you can get a lot more impact by using existing large language models or open source large language models uh, and building around that with the assumption over time, building your own custom large language model will get easier for individual corporations. And so some of that from like why we separate the business from technology to start with is to get those two pieces, and then we'll join them back up. 
Uh, and that is, that's really the first step. You know, it's really three steps, but you know, you've got to first get your business strategy aligned to your ability to deliver on it from a technology perspective. You've got to build a technology strategy that allows you to get fastest results in line with where we expect the market to go to. So that's also very important. Uh, and then you turn that into a strategy. And that that generally is the first step uh, of how we go about engaging enterprises about how to you know adopt some of these generative AI technologies. Beautiful, beautiful. You know what? What I guess making leaders and teams and everyone in that ecosystem uh, wake up in the morning and going to work, you know, with enthusiasm, with the ability to make that difference, right? Is identifying these new opportunities. Okay, what kind of you know work streams can you can you point out? Because looks like right, if I would be making the decisions for organization, I would be right now thinking, hey, are we creating you know enough content? Are we our product design? Can it be improved with this with this new opportunities? So, what's the best way of looking at it? Because again, defining strategies and having this all homework done is good thing. But, yeah. you know, technology is evolving. So and people really want to get a hold of it now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really interesting question. I think I almost flip that question around. And the reason I do that is because uh, for, for businesses, you want impact and you want to be able to know where that impact is coming, particularly in today's, today's you know, economic climate. And so usually the question that I encourage both technology and businesses to go and ask every day is what is the no what's the what's the closest known problem you can solve and what's it worth to the business so it could be something as simple as fraud detection or it could be something as as complex as you know dynamic pricing and prioritization and and or reforecasting and once you understand the value of those problems then the technology becomes almost pulled through because of that and i think i think the mistake that a lot of technologists make is we rush in with this cool technology and we start talking to the board and we do these massive presentations. And I've literally sat in these conversations where the most beautiful technical presentation. And then afterwards I'm talking to like, you know, one of the EVPs of supply chain. He's like, Nick, I have no idea what they said. It sounded cool. My kids do use that stuff, but I don't know how, how that applies to my business. And I think there's a massive disconnect. And so I think that's the first step is looking at the business problems the other th other area that uh, we find is really motivational for organizations is looking at areas where they might have had adjacencies or areas they couldn't get into before. And so often that means looking at, you know, uh, could they go, could they verticalize more? Are they able to, you know, go further upstream or downstream in the traditional markets? And with some of the AI techniques, is it faster to prototype and test those outcomes? And so this is another interesting piece. So I sort of talked about core enterprise, these known use cases with non-value amounts. And let's, call, let's talk about like incubation enterprise, which is could we experiment as an organization and see if we can disrupt our vertical market with an experiment and be able to fail fast or succeed fast the outcome? And I think that's another area where we see you know, you could be a little more technology first in that approach, but you also are quickly validating its business outcomes. And so that's why I like flip the question on one side for core business, go the other way for incubation. That tends to be the sort of framework that allows you to innovate on both sides of that equation.
met a lot of business people who's very savvy with technology, okay? And whoever is trying to enter that organization, they have to realize that they're very knowledgeable business leaders. At the same time, I also have been part of organizations where technology people were so valuable, is so knowledgeable on business side of the house, right? That it's basically becoming the team. And if you're making those decisions in silos, that's going to hurt uh, right, everyone on the long term. I mean, what's what are your observations in terms of that decision making? Yeah, look, I think I think um, leaders are cynical. You know, I think we understand on the business side that uh, we've been asked to make a lot of really big investments the last ten years, and and right now the last twenty four months, you know, we've had to make tough decisions as leaders, right? Like, do you spend? you know, a large amount of money on an AI platform or do you buy 20 more trucks? And, and you know, so the decisions at, at the moment are very real to leaders. And I think with that, the leaders really have to spend the time to be able to articulate, like, what's the time frame? How does this enable the business to grow? And what are the right ways of approaching it? So I think I've seen a shift in decision-making uh, approaches. So two years ago, we would talk a lot about platforms for growth. We'd talk a lot about here's the structure, the foundation. Today, I think we talk much more like, hey, here are the three core initiatives. Here are those three initiatives. And the business technology teams have to come together and, and kind of agree upon, you know, where that resourcing is going. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, but it does, to your point, it forces those two organizations to come together a lot quicker. And, you know, sometimes I'm talking to organizations with, you know, 30, 40,000 people. And so it takes a lot of work to get those alignments to come together. But I do think, I do think that, uh, I think the organizations that the both sides, business, finance, technology, all the different parts are getting much more savvy in, in, in AI and ML. Uh, I think there's, there's a general desire to use this technology to solve problems. Which I, which I think is a real gift for people like you and I, where we kind of can bring some of our experience in like the technical world and the business world together. And what I'm really hoping will evolve is I think we're going to have a much more rigorous approval framework and almost like outcome framework defined up front so we can have much more controlled outcomes. Uh, and so remember, I talked, we used to sell platforms and we'd sell these big visions for multiple use cases. Now I think we talk about repeatable, repeatable architectures with very specific outcomes. And that, that subtle shift is allowing businesses and IT and technology groups to get aligned faster, but also hold each other accountable to key requirements. And I think that is another key, I guess, innovation that we've seen for change management and how organizations work together is really getting uh, the teams aligned on key milestones and outcomes. Because, um, you know, if you don't have the business board in, it's not going to work. If the technology team can't deliver on time, it's not going to work. Uh, and you, and as a technologist, you need to understand how the business is working. And if they're disengaged, it's just not going to work. They're just not going to adopt the technology. Again, the moment we start talking about technology, AI adoption, any kind of new tool, new transformation initiative, all right, we quickly jump to organizational culture. Just we mentioned those, right, already, right? We quickly jump to 
actually technology agnostic business cases, okay, where we'll see the outcome faster, low-hanging fruit, we use all the different terms, uh, right, to define it. So what about data quality? Because that's another big one that comes along, all right, because you can have your strategy, you can have your best people, right? But if you don't have pre-processed data quality, and uh, again, the sources of data that you know, right, you're going to be reliable, that you can trust, so how, how do you advise companies go about that? Because again, everyone accumulated that data. Not everyone knows what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, like old data, old data is, is probably wrong to start with. And so you've <laughs> got to kind of go in and assume that, mm-hmm. you know, that you've got to have to do some, some, some data hygiene. But remember that really good data is just determined to be good data by, by some collective. And so generally for us personally, when we deliver models, we generally, we, we generally go and re regenerate or we'll effectively extract uh, existing data to organize it into a format that we prefer. Um, and that's very unique to how data kinetic operates. We just, we take a very probabilistic view on the data. Um, and so that is, it is a different approach, but we do that because we kind of assume that the the statistical representation of the data is just as accurate as a deterministic representation of the data minus some, you know, some degrees of freedom. But, you know, what I would advise organizations more broadly is absolutely understand the core data that's required to answer the question you're asking. And this is where I think sometimes we get a little carried away as data engineers uh, as data analysts, is we see this beautiful data warehouse architecture and we see all the data we could have. And like, wouldn't it be great if we had like a customer 360 and we had also an understanding of, of our supply chain and put it all in one place. And that is definitely a right, that is the nirvana we should all aim for. But sometimes when we start these projects, it's just better to be like, hey, we only need to know customer transactions and supply chain you know, latency to be able to map supply chain forecasting and make adaptations and start there rather than trying to build this all encompassing broad uh, data architecture. And so generally my advice to start with when customers are taking on these, these complicated data projects is like, Hey, yes, you do need to build to this perfect data set. You need to have, have like a blessed, you know, ordained gold data, data class that you have in your organization. And, and if you don't have that, you know, we know you're going to work towards it, but genuinely to sort of start the machinery of applied AI and to get these, these use cases into production, generally I advise like, hey, just start with the data you need and let's just start with the three or four data sets and let's build onto that and then build on top of that and build on top of that. And I think that that sometimes sounds very pragmatic, like, oh, Nick, we've got all this great data. I'm like, yes, you've got the great data, but start with proving that with just the core data it works and then we can get more sophisticated over time and i think that is where a lot of data science projects get caught up is because you know e- even bi projects get caught up because you try and bring everything you want you want to have the fullest picture like as as like analysts that's what we want to do uh, but first you want signal and then with signal you can add color to the signal or temperature to the signal and so that's generally how we're advising folks uh, around how to manage the data architectures um, the other thing, which again, can sometimes be a bit boring, which is having really good data policy and governance strategy across the organization. And so before you even write your first lot, write, 
were of SQL, getting alignment on like your governance framework and your policies and guidelines. And we talk about AI uh, ethics and like AI grading and scoring components of different models. Getting that right up front is actually really key to supporting a, the development of a good data platform. And so those are the things that we generally advise. Um, and that tends to guarantee a higher likelihood of success for some of these projects. And it also builds confidence in the organization. And I think, you know, combining those three or four things together can be, can be very powerful. This leads us naturally, all right, to skills development and to training. And I see it as a way to get the teams, the organizations on board, okay? Instead of rah-rah and showing beautiful slides, how wonderful our life is going to be once we implement this, right? Getting people to know what AI is, you know, how it will change their job and getting that knowledge to me is fundamental. So how do you find organizations really getting more votes in, you know, internal, you know, internal support for yeah. what's coming? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple great points you raised there. So number one is, is how do you do skills development across the organization? So I'm a big believer that execution solves most problems. And so generally what I recommend to an organization is say, all right, you've got your core architecture, Share that, train people on it so they understand like how you do it, what you, how you want to see most applications delivered, and then set some guide, guardrails on uh, what is the acceptable level of like risk and exposure. So grade your AI applications. So grade one, you know, kind of isolated. Grade two might make some like marketing content. Grade three might be making like decisions on supply chain. Grade four might be, you know, potentially adjusting pricing and have fiscal responsibilities. Grade five might might have potential to harm people. Right. And so you might, what you say is like, okay, everyone in the, in the organization can experiment with grade one and grade two applications. Here's our standard architecture. If you see a problem like it, see if you can solve it. And then provide the training and resources to do that type of grade one, grade two application. So you've put guardrails in the organization, you've put knowledge and you build a repeatable architecture. And that, that I find you're like the people that want to learn it will learn it. And they'll deliver cool stuff and other people will learn from them. And so the people that are like kind of following will learn from those people. And, and that genuinely seems to be the, the most uh, successful way to drive to up level an organization. And, and the second thing I would do for change management is encourage a standardized way of, of once a quarter or once every two months, whatever the cadence is, of bringing a group of stakeholders together to revisit, you know, your, your, your roadmap and then potentially looking at some of those problems. And as people show up in the organization is developing those skills, allocate them a project, uh, but also allocate them like a business partner. And so you're, what you're constantly doing is you're evaluating the roadmap, you're developing skills on the technical side by giving those guardrails. And maybe you give them a grade three application or a grade four application over time. And, and they begin, you begin to use your own policies, your standard platform and your roadmap as well, bring it together. And on the business side, what you're doing is you're maintaining effectively a dashboard again of that roadmap, but alternatively, like, hey, it's been in production for this long. Here's the feedback. Here's the impact we're seeing. Here's the next set of updates we're taking. And that stitches all the technology into the business side and that's the that's where the business sees the change right the business doesn't they don't know what models we use they don't really care 
Um, but if they can see consistent progress against a business outcome, if they can see that growth over time, then that's really powerful. And so that's generally like a system for change management that I like to use. Um, you know, you, obviously there's communication and updates and newsletters or what have you, but those practical elements put together allow you to drive the capital of your organization, drive a common rubric for prioritization and, and still maintain continuity with the business. And so that's generally how I would recommend organizations think about their like cultural and, and sort of skills change management. Sure, sure. And you know what? Business loves performance management. Okay. There are people, there are teams who are really equipped with tools. They're really equipped with all the reporting capabilities, with all the analytics. And guess what? Sometimes these are just numbers, numbers, numbers. Everybody says we're data driven, right? So how can you demonstrate your first inside success, right? With your first projects that gone right. Okay. What part performance management can play without overbearing those doers, you know, and micromanaging and measuring every single step, which again, right, we know it's just demotivating. So yeah, you might have noticed in that framework I had, there was there was there was very there's no real overhead in that, right? That was designed so that the engineers could build things, the leaders could prioritize things and the business could assess things. And so I totally agree with you. Like generally I've been on the other side of the equation, so I genuinely resist it now. Or I want to create like a mathematically correct way of assessing the business without creating like overhead for organizations. And the way to do that is be principle driven versus rule driven. And so you've not, if you, I don't know if you've noticed as I went through, most of my guidance are principles that come together to give you a system versus systems themselves to give you an outcome. And that that allows organizations to move faster but it allows you to also adjust the principle and reset the organization. If you say, hey, level three apps are now including this capability. Level five apps are now including this capability. And the organization can self-rationalize. Where if you use rules-driven, then you have to be like, okay, everyone, we have to re-go through our rules, then sit down for training, update the rules. You have to, like, I, I generally believe that people are able to rationalize outcomes, you know, 80% of the time. And people are probably able to like, rationalize rules 80% of the time, but the cost of delivering rules versus principles is higher. And so statistically, a principle trace organization model is, is better for the organization over time, but it does require some additional thought. I know what you mean. It requires mind change, okay? Because what we were saying, principle-based uh, organization, this gives you freedom and authority and responsibility, okay? And you, when you f feel that foot in the game, I guess, right? People mm -hmm. from single employee to team leaders to right to large departments, you have more stake in the game. I mean, I'm all for individual contribution. What do you think? Just feeling connected to larger goals. hundred percent, hundred percent. And then, and then also, you know, even right down to like the individual, like giving them the tools to self-innovate and self-learn um, is really powerful. And it creates, it creates, it, I mean, didn't mean to say it this way, but it creates creativity. Uh, develops that sort of creative spirit, it creates internal entrepreneurs. And, you know, like I work in regulated industries and, and you know, you have, there's still rules, like you still have to think about privacy and HIPAA and, and what have you. Um, but those, those, the actual development of the applications and the thinking and the applied AI doesn't, 
doesn't have to start with that. It just has to include that. And so there are ways of, you know, saying here's grade one, grade two, grade three. Here's the tools for that. And it really does allow the organization to really evolve uh, and grow. I encourage everyone to follow Nick, to follow Data Kinetic because they are tons of wisdom there. Okay. They're advisors, they're providing solutions. So please reach out and yeah, let the great team to ask you what, what bothering you, right? Finding the right approach, right solution. Absolutely. I'm just enjoying the talk here because I learn from fascinating people in tech. So Nick, uh, turning the page and kind of uh, moving towards um, the future. Okay, because now we're all in this playpen, right? We're looking at whatever level, small, medium, large, small businesses, large organizations, right? Doing something with AI, you know, look at the statistics, look at the investment, all right? It's really the new optimistic American way, I think, right? To ignite, ignite the future growth. So looking into the future, how do you think we're going to end up this year and maybe five years from now in a way that we will be more comfortable, more investments will come, more teams, more, more hiring, more something there? I envision it this way. What about you? Yeah. Well, I think, I think you know, what are we now? We're in July now. So look, we're seeing the the large language model sort of modern AI tool chain stabilize. And so we understand the primitives that are required. And so we're, you know, a lot of those primitives will move into the platforms. Like I think if you go to like Databricks Summit two weeks ago, what Snowflake announced, you can see them stabilizing the, you know, where the, where the primitives are. So vector stores, vector databases, you know, how, how you think about agents. And, and so those are starting to stabilize. So I think in a year, towards the end of the year, we'll see a relatively consistent set of primitives and, and components to support these models. I think towards the end of the year, we'll start to see what I'd call uh, open source and closed source models of excellence or generic models. And so we'll have, a, we'll have room to understand how to use those. I think the fine tuning and custom build it, custom tooling, custom modeling, you know, I expect that to also stabilize in, you know, six to 12 months. And so we'll start to, see the actual improvement of, of custom modeling versus using it like a rag approach. So effectively retrieval aggregation. Um, you know, I think, I think that, that, um, so we'll see those stabilize, I think. And so what that means short term is like, you know, be very conscious as to where you're putting your investments. Like in some ways it's better to invest in a good embedding strategy now into a vector store than trying to build your own custom large language model. Uh, or, you know, understand how you can, you know, build agents in a way that ensure that, you know, your data doesn't leave the organization. And so thinking those through, uh, there's definitely some cases for customers putting large language models, but, you know, I think, I think we're going to keep seeing those models themselves, uh, become more efficient, more stabilized. And what, as I said, we'll see models of excellence over time. So you have, we'll have an open source model that's really good at code generation. We'll see an open source model that's good at summarization. Uh, we'll see one, others that are good at math. And I think as we see these models of excellence evolve, uh, that will probably be in the next you know, six to 12 months, we can kind of choose or have almost like a, a model router that will allow us to, to figure out which model makes the most sense based on how the agents responded. So I think, I think the underlying tooling is going to stabilize and become a lot more accessible for folks and the costs will continue to race you know, pretty quickly uh, to something more commoditized. Um, 
you know, we're also starting to see like more runtime on these models. So, you know, being able to run actual applications inside of these models, I think that's a natural, you know, data gravity, model gravity type play. Um, for most enterprises though, I, I think most enterprises will tend to want to have their own, you know, opinionation on the architecture. And so running on, you know, a runtime in some of these model platforms may or may not make sense. Uh, for organizations, for large organizations, at least. So I think I think the other thing we'll see uh, in the next six to 12 months, I, I, I worry a little bit that um, there's been so much hype that there's going to be sort of the anti-hype. And so I think I think for organizations now just to be prepared for like, hey, be really specific, like, you know, there's going to come a point in six months time where everyone's like, well, we had ChatGPT back in January and it didn't change. It was cool, but it didn't change our world. And so I think you've got to really focus on translating that. And so making sure that, you know, you've set expectations of your organization well, uh, and you're also prepared for that. So that's my, my one year prediction. Five years is, okay, oh, go, go ahead. No, 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 five years, five years, exciting, yeah. Five, five years, I mean, it's such a hard, Hard, um... We're not gonna hold you responsible, Nick. You're not the only one who cannot guarantee five-year prediction. This yeah. is just yeah. This well, is our imagination and what we see from the intuition and experience you have. Look, I'll give you I'll give you my five-year wish list where I hope to yep. see us Good. in five years, which is mm -hmm. I, I really do want to see like in five years, I think I think there's an opportunity for all of us to get you know much better at having repeatable uh describable outcomes that the business can request from these platforms these platforms deliver them and so that right now there's so much customization in the middle that's really hard to get there and i really hope in five years we can say i would like a single serving of supply chain supply chain optimization please and the model's like here's your single serving of supply chain optimization and how that happens underneath doesn't really matter as long as it's within some cost and doesn't break any laws and stays aligned with our principles. And so that's where I'd like to see the market get to. Now, obviously, there's, you know, we talked about just some of the stuff under the hood today that has to be solved to make that possible. But that's really where I'd like to see it because I think by, in some ways, standardizing outcomes and making those outcomes predictable for the business, you know, that's really where in the concept of generative applied AI can get really powerful. Like, hey, I would like a single serving of X, Y, and Z. The platform delivers that, you know, someone validates it and then you just, you know, manage it. And I think that that is where I hope we end up in five years because that's true, you know, that's GDP changing type innovation that is really powerful. Uh, so that's what I hope for. Can we share, please, you know, AI initiative gone right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, with technology, with people around the organization around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a number of use cases that I see today that are, are really powerful that we're, at least we're working on and, and we see, you know, significant upside. So I think the first is around supply chain. You know, we supply chain, surprisingly, you know, a lot of it runs in people's inboxes, you know, invoice comes in, it gets put into a system, gets managed. Um, and I'm not just talking about small, small organizations. I'm talking about, you know, up to fortune 50 and, you know, this gone right. We see is there's sort of two dimensions. One is detection of, you know, is that how do you speed that process up? So you can have a much more accurate view of your supply chain. 
And so by being able to go through and take, you know, the unstructured data documents of multiple suppliers and being able to aggregate them quickly and put them into your supply chain system and understand where you're at and make decisions based on that data uh, is dramatically accelerated. Now we've got these new approaches with large language models and dealing with unstructured data. And what that means in reality is, you know, potentially before you'd pay all your invoices and in, say net 30, but it would take you 45 days to review all the invoices and you might have had the same invoice three times go through the system. And so you've paid this vendor three times. And, you know, like in the smaller, smaller cases, you, you know, you can get the vendor to give it back and it takes some time and you work it out. In the bigger cases, you know, some of some of the customers we work with, they're paying their vendors, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and so it's hard to kind of go back and be like, hey, can you give us back $2 million of this large contract? You just kind of negotiate through it. And so that take puts a pretty big burden on the organization. At the end of the year, you kind of, you know, figure out the numbers and, and wherever they end up, you know, you kind of calculate the losses and what the relationships work, et cetera. So in that, those use cases, we're finding that we're able to make supply chains much more efficient, but also much more accurate. And that reduces costs, not only in like, you know, the cost, like, you know, fraud detection, although not all these cases are fraud, but they're anomaly detection. Uh, and that can be really beneficial for both sides, right? And then the other thing is your, you know, the leadership team, the, the auditing teams, they're also able to focus on much more complex problems versus often they're triaging all these types of use cases. That's, that's one. The other one that's been very interesting is supply chain compliance is very hard to do. And so what with supply chain compliance, you're looking in your upstream suppliers, right? So people that supply you and you want to ensure that you get uh, your supply chain is, is validated. You don't want to suddenly accidentally grab, you know, palm oil from, you know, the wrong place. And there's so much palm oil that's used in so many things, but there's good palm oil producers and bad palm oil producers. And, you know, sometimes they do weird things like, you know, they'll take good palm oil and they'll put bad palm oil in the good palm oil. And, you know, then you get it and you don't even know. And so you want to be able to validate your suppliers. And you do that through a number of reports and initiatives. And the way that most large organizations do it today is they have a large outsource team that's that's calling these suppliers up and asking questions. They're, they've got like alerts to figure out if news pops up. They're auditing, you know, documents to see if, you know, did the ship leave with 100 tons and arrive with 100 tons? Or did it leave with 70 and arrive with 100? You know, there's all these different things to look for that these these large teams usually outsource. They're usually offshore, uh, but they're very expensive to maintain. Uh, and at the end of the year, a CFO or each quarter, the CFO has to, you know, sign this financial disclosure saying my supply chain is validated. And I think I think for us, we've been able to also take this technology and begin to support, you know, pretty complex supply chain forensics that allow organizations to go through and say, hey, uh, we can validate our supply chain or just help those teams identify the areas they should go focus on first. So that's those are two examples that I think uh, are pretty interesting that, you know, two years ago would not have been possible without the generative AI technology we have today. Amazing, amazing, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing those. This is inspiring example where business can see the, the outcomes, right? When team proud of themselves, right? Being able to deliver those and that's what 
keeps us running and humans no. okay so no. thank you thank you so very much nick in conclusion can i ask you few for few takeaways okay because we did all the way you know from strategy to examples so what what kind of what kind of message we want to leave our audience with in the end yeah so we did cover a lot of ground today so let's start with look as an organization, definitely focus on the road mapping piece first. Focus on the business to technical alignment. That's number one. Get that right with timelines and a lot of the stuff will fall into place. Uh, number two, uh, you know, use a principles-driven uh, approach to allow your organization to go through change management and do that in a way where they, you know, they're intended to learn, but also they have clear guidelines. So they know where they can and can't play. Uh, and then number three is, you know, as you look at your um, you know, the different opportunities for you to work in different problems, try start with the business side and then come to the technology side. Um, because if I, you just look at those two supply chain use cases, if you looked at ChatGPT, you wouldn't think, oh, ESG, supply chain compliance at ChatGPT, but actually a lot of it is using the same models. And so when you start from the, from the business use case, we can then translate all of those technologies in over the top and understand those. And so that's my third thing is, is definitely stay close to the business and identify those opportunities. And then, you know, there's definitely people that can help, you know, will definitely help you. I'm sure there's lots of folks out there. The, the market is definitely what I love about this space right now is everyone's sharing ideas. Uh, we're always happy to, to, you know, chat to folks and share some of the stuff we're working on or help you out. Uh, but those are the three things. Really good roadmap, uh, good, good sort of guidance and principles for change and growth. And number three, staying very close to the business and making sure that, you know, as you get those, don't be afraid to reach out for some help. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for your time, for sharing your experience and your wisdom. I encourage everyone, uh, contact Nick King, contact Data Kinetic, okay, for more. Yeah, absolutely, because we're just scratching the surface here in this very short and informative talk, I hope. So thank you, Nick, so very much. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for having me, Irene.